Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. Hello, everyone. Today's book review actually comes from a essay that was written by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It's called Black Cops Kid. Uh, I came across this on Audible. Um, so it's a it's a pretty short book or audiobook, whichever version you use. But uh, I really enjoyed getting the perspective that he shares in this essay because he kind of navigated two worlds, both of being a black person, but also having a father who served in uh, law enforcement as a police officer. So I will share some of those insights that I've gained from this book with you. And I'll hop in with kind of providing some context because me personally, uh, growing up, I'm, I'm not really that into sports. So I knew that uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a, a basketball player. And the only reason I know that is because I used to watch reruns of Full House. And I remember there was an episode where he um, like guest starred in an episode. So uh, that's about the extent that I know about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But y'all know me well enough to know that I love a memoir or um, life stories of people. So um, I definitely uh, devoured this one in one sitting. So uh, to get started, I'm going to share a quote. For 50 years, I've been both defending and criticizing the police. I've criticized them when their actions reflected the violent systemic racism that resulted in the deaths of unarmed minorities. This precarious tightrope act has resulted in venomous backlash from both sides. I've been accused of being both a black anti-cop agitator and an apologist for racist police violence. My ability to see both sides isn't the result of trying to please both sides. My perspective is the result of having been raised by a black police officer in New York City during the most tumultuous civil rights upheaval the country has ever been through and of the effect both those influences had on me throughout my life. My father was not an activist. He didn't march with Martin, didn't give impassioned speeches, didn't demand racial equality with a raised fist. But he became a cop in 1955 at a time when doing so was in itself a defiant political statement. The job carried dangers from both the street and his fellow officers. On the street, some white people were contemptuous of seeing a black man in authority, and they weren't shy about expressing their distaste with vile epithets. And, in turn, he heard the mutterings of Uncle Tom from those who looked like him, angry to see one of their own, quote, colluding with the enemy. On those occasions, when we came across a white pedestrian who saw my dad's uniform and looked a bit startled, I felt an extra surge of pride. 
He had rattled someone's preconceived notion about blacks, and it was thrilling. I didn't realize at the time that startling whites out of their biases was the entire mission of the civil rights movement and would become the driving force in my own life, end quote. Hopefully that translated well. I kind of jumped around between uh, different parts from the first section of the essay to kind of give you that synopsis. And so whether I knew of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, for his basketball career or not, I thought it would be really cool to share the perspective because obviously um, I've shared a lot on this podcast about, you know, uh, about books that I've read or just current events that have happened um, in which people of color are treated unfairly or, you know, downright systemic racism. So um, it's not too often that you get two seemingly opposing views in one situation. So I, I definitely appreciated some of the insights here. The next quote I'm going to share kind of gives some of the background that uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had for uh, becoming uh, an activist in the second part of his career, kind of speaking out on civil rights and stuff like that. So, quote, two events had a profound effect on that naive point of view. The first was the brutal murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till. In 1955, he was abducted and beaten to death by several white men for talking to a married white woman, which later reports revealed never happened. Emmett's mother insisted on an open casket so the world could see the horrific things done to her son. Although the two accused men were acquitted by an all-white jury, a few months later, they confessed to the crime in a magazine interview, knowing they couldn't be tried again. I was only eight when he was murdered, but a few years later in 1960, I learned about him and the trial, and I realized I no longer felt safe in my own skin. Being black was being a target, and being a child offered no safety from the grown men willing to beat you to death for the smallest infringement of their rules rules that the system protected. After that, I felt exposed. When I walked down the street, I crouched a little bit more, looked around more to see who was looking my way, and I certainly started questioning the wisdom of those in authority. Who were they looking out for? While some kids might have discussed these thoughts and apprehensions with their father, mine was not that kind of father. I began to wonder how my father could defend the system that insisted on keeping us in the dark about our own heritage, demeaning our achievements by ignoring them, end quote. So in this essay, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar talks about in his adolescence how he kind of struggled between, you know, coming to his own identity as being a young black man uh, but also understanding systemic racism as it pertains to law enforcement and things like that. And though he grew up several decades ago, uh, I think that the insights here are definitely relevant today because a lot of these same problems still exist. So in the next quote, he talks about how he uh, got to see uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speak 
And then uh, shortly after the um, event, he kind of went through a trauma, which um, influenced his trajectory in life. So, quote, watching Dr. King speak with such clarity, such commitment, such passion about changing America's biases and behavior towards us not only inspired me, but forced me to ask myself, was my dad changing things or helping to maintain the status quo? These doubts were intermittent thoughts that buzzed my brain like a wandering mosquito that attacked for a few seconds, then flew off into the night. When I got off the subway, I was feeling pretty good about myself. I'd attended a news conference with Dr. King and even asked him a question. My basketball career was going well with scholarship offers coming in, and in another year, I'd be out of New York City starting a life on my own. As I climbed the steps from the underground subway to the street, I immediately banished all thoughts of the record store or strolling to the rally. Instead, I was running for my life. Gunshots burst around me, glass windows shattered. I ducked down behind a lamppost as people ran by screaming, some in anger, some in terror. When you're a cop's kid, there's always a deep down feeling, however irrational, that you are somehow protected from the dangers of the street. That night, any ideas of special protection were shattered along with the storefront windows around me. I crouched in fear until I gathered the courage, or maybe desperation, to run away as fast as I could. My long legs helped, but they also made me a taller target. And as I ran, I imagined that any moment a stray bullet might punch through my back, end quote. I just found it valuable that he was able to write about what he thought was a sense of safety is not what he had imagined it to be because despite, you know, um, like he was getting ready to go to college, everything was going well, um, but it doesn't stop the the still present uh, danger of, you know, being black in the United States. And so moving on, he talks about how in the time of him growing up, there wasn't really uh, a lot of platforms for people to really process all of these traumas. Unlike, you know, today, we, you know, it's very easy for someone to take to the internet, social media, and talk about the the impacts that all of this stuff is having. Um, so I want to share a, a quote that he gives kind of to, to help us understand what that was like to be in his shoes. So, quote, when we expressed our fear and frustration about any inequities, we were told to move on. It reminded me of Charles Dickens' Bleak House when the poor sickly boy Joe, who's always told by the police to move on, breaks down and cries. I'm always a moving on, Sar, cries the boy, wiping away his grimy tears with his arm. I've always been a moving and a moving on ever since I was born. Where can I possibly move to, sir? When the sympathetic adult questions the constable's actions by asking where exactly the boy should move on to, 
The constable replies by rote, My instructions don't go to that. My instructions are that this boy is to move on. The constable wasn't a protector of the marginalized. He was a tool of the wealthy who didn't want to see disparity or be reminded of the dire consequences of their greedy policies on real people. So, where did that leave my dad? Was being a black cop really being a role model like I thought all my life? Or the opposite? Did he poke people with a nightstick and tell them to move on? Did the white boss cops point to him to prove they weren't racist? I knew he was a good man, but was he doing a good thing for our people? End quote. And so the next part that I'm going to share kind of, you know, this essay kind of goes through, obviously, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's development from a young kid to an adult with, you know, a platform and stuff like that. So uh, this next quote kind of talks about uh, some of the uh, insights that he gained once he was an adult and kind of was, you know, into his career um, and how this kind of developed his thoughts on law enforcement and uh, systemic racism and things. So, quote, after I left home, my faith in him as a black role model was rewarded. And he's referring to his father here. Uh, during a courtroom hearing, an accused man grabbed the bailiff's gun, and shot the bailiff between the eyes. The shooter then escaped the courthouse and ran into the subway tunnels. My father captured him without firing a shot, for which he received a citation for bravery from the mayor and a promotion. To be fair, I didn't really understand the full complexity and toll of being a black cop until after I'd left home. In locking up our own, Crime and Punishment in Black America, author James Foreman Jr. discusses the conundrum of being a black cop in America. Because of systemic racism, white officers may over-police and use violence against African Americans, which then implicates black cops in those racist actions. Black officers who don't openly share white officers' biases about African Americans might be viewed as being soft on crime and more lenient towards their own, which would alienate and isolate them from white cops. Some black cops respond by over-policing African Americans to prove their loyalty to blue over black. Although we never discussed it, I have no doubt that my father had to deal with these same conflicting loyalties. I can't imagine his having to deal with the stress of being a cop in New York City, as well as the stress of knowing your fellow cops didn't have your back. The black cop has a complicated conflict of loyalties. On one hand, they represent and are sworn to uphold the American judicial system. On the other hand, they are well aware that the selective enforcement of many laws and the open biases of our justice system unfairly burden their own communities. They know that it doesn't matter that they are cops when their own sons or daughters are driving around or may be unreasonably stopped by white police and injured or killed. It's a tremendous act of faith in our country to continue to defend 
its lopsided values in the hope that we are still on a righteous path of equality for all, a path they are helping forge. But man, it's hard to keep your eyes on that prize when you're getting bear mace sprayed in your face. The thin blue line to protect the law abiding members of society from the lawless has become an extension of the thick white line acting as a personal security force for white paranoia. The cops are just a phone call away from excluding blacks from white society. In 2019, a Colorado resident called the police to report a black man wearing a ski mask and waving his arms. He was not accused of any crime. Elijah McLean, 23, a musician and athlete, was merely walking home from a convenience store listening to music. The ski mask was because he had a blood condition that made his skin cold. White officers responding to the call subdued him with a hold cutting off blood to his brain, then injected him with an overdose of a sedative. He died three days later. An investigation concluded the officers had no reason to stop him. In 2018, a black Harvard graduate student was napping in the common room of her dorm, which a white student found suspicious and called the police. She showed the cops her room, but they still demanded to see ID to prove she belonged there. A black man walking his dog in Central Park told a white woman her dog needed to be on a leash. She called the police and claimed he was threatening her life. A kid walking home, a girl napping in her university commons, a man walking his dog, women golfing too slowly, two men waiting for a friend at Starbucks, a college student eating lunch in the commons, a man working at LA Fitness, an 11-year-old boy on his first day delivering newspapers, the list of black men, women, and children doing mundane activities whom white people have called the police on goes on and on. Once police showed up, these confrontations with innocent blacks can end in humiliation, arrest, injury, or even death. It's what black people refer to as the crime of BWB, breathing while black, end quote. It goes without saying, but obviously the, the niche of this, this podcast is to talk about mental health for folks of color. Um, but I think this last quote here kind of summarizes the collective um, emotional toll that a lot of the challenges that we still see throughout the news and the and just everyday life of being a minority in this country, um, it obviously takes a toll on you know your sense of safety, your your overall quality of life, and and stuff like that. So I definitely found this essay to be very eye opening, and I think um, more recently. You know, there's been so much attention on law enforcement doing the wrong thing and how, unfortunately, a lot of times they get away with it and there's no accountability. I come by it honestly, just like a lot of people of color come by it honestly to lack trust for law enforcement, especially when um, a miscommunication or 
a situation where you're doing a mundane task can end in, like it said, humiliation, injury, or death. And so the next two quotes that I'm going to share are going to kind of summarize the end of the essay. Quote, becoming a professional athlete was my roundabout way of going into the family business. To me, the family business wasn't law enforcement. It was fighting for justice. Being a cop, my dad instilled in me an appreciation for the power of the law to protect people and bring justice. Being a black cop, my dad made me aware that bad laws can be passed and good laws can be unfairly enforced. Being a black cop's kid made me especially sensitive to injustice, especially the injustice caused by people judging others based on the color of their skin, nationality, gender, religion, or sexual orientation. So as I was saying before, I the, the takeaway that I got from this book is that police officers are people too. And it sounds simplistic for me to say that, but I think when you're constantly overwhelmed by the highlights of when law enforcement messes up, it is reasonable that you would become sort of jaded or, um, you know, to kind of lump all law enforcement into the, the category that they're all bad. Right. Um, and obviously we don't hear as much about the, the good things, um, that occur. Um, we, we primarily hear about the, the systemic racism and things that, um, is going on. And, you know, that, that is a sign that there's still a lot of work to be done. This, this kind of opened my, my eyes and gave me kind of a different vantage point on the, the dichotomy between, uh, the quote blue line or, you know, the, the, the plight of black lives matter. So I'm going to end with one more quote here. My success as an athlete at UCLA and the NBA brought me some opportunities to speak out against injustice, and I seized those opportunities with a renewed purpose. It became part of my mission as an athlete to promote not just my beliefs about civil rights, but also to shatter the stereotype notion that athletes were just dumb slabs of beef with no commitment to their communities or thoughtful opinions about their country. I hope that the more I spoke out, the more other athletes would be inspired. The more I spoke out against racial injustice, the more hostile the press became. For many, my conversion to Islam was seen as a rejection of America, the same America that had given me my career. In fact, it was a rejection of the name of the man who once enslaved my ancestors and an embracement of the religion that connected me back to my African roots. My decision to choose my own identity angered many people, and that anger was expressed continuously by harsh sports writers who were antagonistic and insulting. Naturally, I withdrew a bit from the onslaught for which they punished me by characterizing me as aloof and cold like my dad. Maybe 
he was the role model for how to protect myself, the way he was able to compartmentalize his street life and home life, end quote. So that last uh, quote there talks about how when, you know, as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar developed and, you know, gained awareness of his identity and uh, how he was going to spend the years following his basketball career. He talks about kind of the differing opinions and criticisms that he received. But I found it interesting that in his conversion to Islam, he uh, it was important for him to basically reject the name that he was given at birth because it traced back to uh, enslavement. So, um, I thought that was a, an interesting, uh, tidbit there. Um, but anyway, as I wrap this up, I, I've been trying very hard to keep all episodes under 30 minutes. Um, I hope that some of these insights that I've shared here have kind of given the listener something to think about. I know that, um, each time I open a new book, uh, I learn something new and I get excited to come here and share it with y'all. So, uh, I'm going to put, uh, links to, um, this book into this episode show notes. So I highly recommend, uh, checking it out, but until the next time, thank you for listening and take care. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today.